If you have ever struggled with hiring the talent you really need versus the talent you are getting, this episode is for you. Many are calling these times the great resignation age, where companies are fighting for the best talent and employees are looking to better their standing. If your company is not executing in the area of talent recruiting and management, you will quickly find yourself losing your best people and missing out on great future candidates. Crystalix started her company Job Talk after 10 plus years in the employment sector, and she provides one-on-one job hunting support to individuals in transition, as well as employer branding and RPO consulting to companies. She continuously sees employers struggle to attract, recruit, and retain the talent they wanted and needed, and her firm started to become a liaison between candidates and organizations. We hope you take as much out of this episode as we did. Crystal, welcome to the Entrepreneurs United podcast. We're excited to have you here today. Hello. Yes, thank you for the invite. Absolutely. We'd love to learn, I guess, to really start off a little bit about your career path and what took you to your current company, JobStock. Oh, gosh, the short version? (laughs) (laughs) Or the long one. (laughs) Um, So Job Talk is a career counseling practice. Um, So I work mostly with one-on-one individual job seekers. And jobs have been my job for about 13 years now. So I got out of college. I went to UNH, go Wildcats. um, And I got my bachelor's in journalism. And I graduated in 2007 when the recession was hitting (laughs) and the bottom of the economy was falling out. And uh, thank God for bartending. And um, I actually just fell backwards into the employment sector. I went into a staffing firm one day off the recommendation of a good friend of mine who had, it had worked for her. And uh, I went in looking for copywriting jobs. You know, I'm like super ambitious, got this new shiny degree. I was still writing, writing checks for, (laughs) and uh, they were like, Hey, we actually have a position internally. So do you want to come and work for us? And so I knew nothing about recruiting or anything. I learned from the ground up. And uh, that really was what I think opened my eyes to this whole other space that existed. And I just fell in love with it. I love the psychology of it. Why do people hire the people that they hire who maybe aren't even the best fits to the job description? Um, So it was just really, really interesting to me. Um, I still wrote, I would blog about employment stuff. Um, But it was great. And then that led me into career services. And I worked for two different colleges, uh, including UNH, where I was director of career services there, helping students find jobs connected to their major, find internships, uh, bring employers to campus, do all that kind of stuff. And then my favorite employer, Lint Chocolate, came to town and was like, hey, we've got this corporate recruitment uh, position open and, you know, would love to talk to you about it. We need a lot of help with our internship programming. Um, And so went and joined the corporate world, made a lot more money. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that really set me up for sort of like this path of, okay, been doing this for three or four years now with Lint. I really want to open this practice. This was always the someday plan, but now I'm financially set up to do it. I've paid off my student loans. And so it was this very methodical process. Like I gave my boss a 12 month notice and she was incredibly supportive. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I'll backfill myself. I will do whatever I need to do. Um, but then I opened Job Talk and it was, uh, I opened full time uh, April of 2019. So coming okay. up on two and a half years. And it's been great. great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I, I'd like to understand maybe a little bit about it seems like you had always had thought about starting your own practice, um, but you know, went the career route, I guess, initially, you know, pay off the college. Uh, loans and and kind of get yourself settled. But why did you want to have your own practice versus continue to be in the corporate environment or the the private sector with uh, colleges or whatnot? That's a great question. I mean, I think, um, to be honest, I didn't know what I didn't know when I started. And I do not come from, I always kind of say that it's ironic that I do what I do now because I didn't come from a background that had a lot of entrepreneurialism. On my mom's side, her parents had a restaurant. So it was like the family restaurant growing up. So I had seen it, but like from a distance, they live in Ohio. I was in New Hampshire. It was like I was Mm -hmm. a kid. So I knew it was possible, but I didn't know how that would impact me. I didn't know how to make it my thing. And so when I started, um, it was actually more when I was in career services uh, for a community college before I even went over to UNH. And I had seen that there were so many non-traditional students, right? Folks just going back to finish a degree or whatever. And they were coming in and they had these resumes and I'm like, who made this for you? (laughs) Where did this come from? And they're like, I paid someone like $600 to do this. And I'm like, people are dropping mortgage payments practically on these. I'm going to not swear in this podcast in case it's a child-friendly podcast. It was totally a resume that I felt like was keeping them unemployed. 
And so that was the first thing that I was like, oh my God, like I could, I would do this for a fraction of the cost. They would be much better set up. I'd actually talk to them about why we were setting it up in the way they did. So it was almost like the need for me to start my own practice arose more so than my desire to start my own practice. And that was sort of where the seedlings started being planted in the back of my mind. Like someday I'm going to do this someday. And then it was just like more and more and more instances of that. And that's what I would blog about. And people were kind of saying to me for a long time, like, you could, you should just like do this. Like, and then yep. I had parents calling me. <laughs> this was the other thing. Parents from students at UNH that were calling me being like, hey, you helped my kid find his internship. Can you kind of like look at my resume? Can you help me with this? And I'm like, unless you're a student, I really, I can't. Like I only yeah. have so much time in the day, right? So okay. it became obvious that there was a need. Um, and that's kind of what drove more of the wheels turning. Gotcha. And, you know, so you start your business in April of 2019. It probably, you know, was less than a year later, 10 months later, where the world's now falling apart. Um, how did that impact you from, you know, being a first-time entrepreneur starting your business? Be like, what's going on? Uh, how did that affect your business? And how did you react to that? Uh, you know, it's funny. <laughs> uh, I will say this. I am not a, I'm not an impulsive person, but I'm not a risk-adverse person either. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very much a planner. So yeah. Gave my boss 12 months, right? I had also saved enough money to pay my bills for a year in case the whole practice crashed and burned. <laughs> I was like very realistic about myself. Yeah, uh, I was like, you know, I'll have enough time to go find another recruiting job if I have to. It'll be fine, but I got to try this. So when things really started, I mean, I was busy out the gate. That's the other thing. Like, j- again, jobs have been my job for a long time. People have known me to be in this space. So I had a lot of people reaching out as soon as I announced on LinkedIn that I was opening this practice. Mm-hmm. So I had a good client base already, but I'll say February, March, April of 2020, people were starting to be like, Hey, I don't know what's happening. Like we didn't know what this was going to look like. Right. We thought maybe a month, this is cool. Whoa, the world's shutting down. Oh my God, wait a minute. Hold on. And so people started kind of dropping off my calendar. And so there was probably a good, like three or four weeks where there was just like a trickle, you know, there was like some folks I was working with, but I had seen people start saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I need to save my money. And I don't know if I'm going to lose my job or not. I might have to, I might have to change my plan completely. Chasing the dream job might not be what I need to do anymore. I might need to go find just an immediate job. Right. So it was interesting that there was the the dip. And then when people realized that this was going to be hanging around for a while, I was, I think my practice exploded in June. Like mm-hmm. I, I was booked. I mean, I couldn't, I was squeezing people in on weekends. I was, you know, I have clients from all over the country. I was already operating remotely. Um, and so for me, it was kind of like, I didn't know what was going to happen to answer yeah. your question. I was very nervous, but at the same yeah. time I felt like, okay, I have enough of a cushion. I have a little bit of time, but in a global pandemic where the employment sector is being rocked, there's no better job to be in than career counseling, apparently, yeah. Yeah. because I was very, very, very busy. Wow, and, I, awesome. and I live in gratitude because of that. I should say that like it was, it's very much a silver lining that I was someone that actually benefited from this whole thing or my business grew from this, but yeah. you know, it was hard I'm de- dealing with very, very emotional, stressed out people. Like, Oh yeah. No doubt. Well, good thing you didn't start a restaurant <laughs> during that time. Right. Um, or right before the pandemic which you went into a field that really, you know, from my perspective, uh, is very trivial right now. You know, the, the economy's doing fairly well. The stock market's doing fairly well. Yet, I know in our market, I don't know, Rich, in your market, but I've heard in different markets across the country, I mean, there's not enough workers to work the restaurants, not enough workers to work uh, some companies and manufacturing. And uh, it's very, it's a very odd time right now because it seems like companies are looking to hire and there's not enough population to take on these roles. Um, how, how are you viewing it from your standpoint and where do you think we're going here in the next you know, six to 12 months in terms of the employment markets? That's a great question. Um, I'll be honest with you. I think that there is absolutely a labor shortage in certain pockets. But I okay. think that the amount of people, I think there are people out there that want to work for a livable wage. And I think the days of paying people peanuts and expecting that to be okay are gone. And I'm happy to see it gone. Hmm. And I'm saying this to you as a former bartender. I'm saying this to you as a former waitress. I'm saying this to you as someone who worked minimum wage jobs when I was a kid, right? It is unbelievable to me that in the state of New Hampshire where I live, our minimum wage is still the federal minimum wage, which is like Mm $7.25. I mean, that is just unbelievable. So 
the employers out here, I, I'm, I'm playing a small violin for some of them, right? Like, all right, you know, I'm seeing McDonald's and like a couple of the other big fast food chains, like knock it up. Right. But I just saw the paper the other day, there was a cafe owner near me who was like, you know, I wasn't getting any applicants. So I raised the pay to 15 bucks an hour and I got 75 applicants overnight. Hmm. Go figure. People need to like that. We need to give people a livable wage. Right. So I have, my sympathy is very like, there's an asterisk next to my sympathy for what's Mm. going on there. When it comes to the next six to 12 months, I will tell you right now that, you know, people are talking about the great resignation. This is like what people are calling it. I saw there was a great article. I think it was the New York times that said, this is about to be the biggest game of musical chairs we've ever seen in the market. Like people are just moving. There's a lot of movement and this is the most advantageous job market right now for candidates in the last 20 years. So we have a lot going on that's very favorable for people who have wanted to make a move, maybe felt like there wasn't a lot that they were seeing out there that that was interesting or fitting to their background. But now they're going and they're taking that risk. And I think what's good about this is that it's balancing. I always used to say when I was a recruiter, the market keeps us honest, right? If people are demanding better maternity leave packages, we need to be competitive as an employer and we need to offer this, right? So there's a certain amount of this responsiveness that I think is always put on. There's a, there's a, a light shown on this for employers. If you're not responding to what people are saying that they need from you, you, you really don't have a lot to complain about when you're not getting that talent. You have to be competitive. I fully believe it is an employer's responsibility to offer a great experience and to retain their talent. And so you can't blame people for leaving and needing to do right by themselves, especially after the year we just had. So I am calling sort of September, there's like a September tsunami coming. Um, Mm. This is something that I'm seeing big time. Uh, I have had so many people reach out to me because they just got those emails from their employer saying, Hey guys, guess what? Like, and this was more so like a couple months ago, but right before the Delta variant really started taking off. Yeah. Employers being like, Hey, we're going to come back into the office full time in September, back to normal, right? Yep. Hey, I can't wait to see everybody. And you have this horrified <laughs> population on the other end of this email chain. Yeah. And people being like, calling up me and being like, they think I'm coming back. I'm definitely not coming back. Like, if I'm coming back, it's going to be for a hybrid model. Or people saying, I already moved. I already wow. moved. Why would I sit here in San Francisco and yep. pay these crazy rents? I'm yep. going to pocket my tech salary and move back to like Milwaukee. Yep. And and have some cheap rent and spend time with my family. And so you have this incredible um, power struggle that's going on right now. And I yep. think September is going to be a real, if it's not already, it is going to be a very rude awakening for a lot of these employers that think they're bringing back a lot of their workforce. Um, and obviously mm-hmm. certain jobs have to be done in person, right? I've worked in yep. manufacturing environments, like I get it. But I think for the people I'm talking about, you know what I mean. Wow, Rich, it, we may have to get this episode out on an emergency basis because <laughs> the September tsunami is coming. And this is the, I mean, if I'm an entrepreneur listening to this episode right now, I'm like, holy cow, what are we going to do before we lose our people? Because there's a massive talent war going on. And Rich, this, this I, I don't know if you've heard this, but the, the great resignation, I, I hadn't even heard that before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's you like what that, coining yeah. it. You have yeah. heard that. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm curious, Crystal, what percentage of those that you represent in your practice are the individual seeking employment versus the company seeking employees? 99%. 99% of the individual. Yeah, yeah because I have um, maybe like one corporate client that I do some RPO work for, which is recruitment process outsourcing. Um, they're kind of a small... Um, uh, sustainable investment firm that they just don't have a recruiter in house. So I, I'm still plugged into a recruiting function, like with them on the side, uh, like eight hours a week, right? Real light with my practice. I'll see 300 people plus like more than that a year, one-on-one clients that are job seeker clients. Got it. Good. Yep. Thanks for the context. Cause I have a yep. series of follow-up questions depending on, uh, which the audience. Which yeah. That, yeah. Depending on which way that went. So, as an employer, because our audience is entrepreneurs who are employers, mm-hmm. uh, you had said that it's the employer's responsibility to provide a great experience and retain their people. As you say that, and you're giving advice to 300 plus people, how 
is a great experience being defined? What are the aspects of that? And what are you recommending people look for that are examples of a great experience that our entrepreneurs can hear this and say, oh, yeah, Crystal said this. Hmm, interesting. I should probably develop that. That's a really great question. Um, I'll answer the candidate piece first, and then I'll give direct advice to your audience (laughs) of employers. Um, For candidates, so the thing is, is that there's so much about a great experience that's subjective, right? You could say, I could say to a client, um, hey, what's important to you in this next move you make? And they, they could say, I just want to work for a place that has a great culture. I'm like, all right, well, what does a great culture mean to you? Because that could be a totally different definition to me, right? It's the same thing when I say to someone, when they say, you know, I just want to go someplace that I can grow. Well, what does growth look like to you? Is that compensation? Is that a title change? Is that responsibility? So people, candidates have to get clear on what it is that's important to them. Um, Something that a a good friend of mine said that I constantly requote is, um, understand what you value. This is going to be different across the board, right? But it's the onus is on the candidate to be bringing this stuff up in an interview and actually assessing, is this even the right environment for me based on the things that I actually care about? And so that's a huge part of what I counsel people on. It's not about like, oh, I want to go work for a great culture. I went and took this job. It wasn't a great culture, so I'm leaving. It's like, we have to take some responsibility here about what are we actually asking for. If you were sold a bad bad bag of goods in the interview, that's one thing, right? If someone's just blatantly lying about what their culture is like. But there's certain ways of like sussing out, is this actually a space that I can thrive in rather than just feel like I'm surviving in, you know? When it comes, does that answer your candidate question? Yeah, thank you. Okay. the employer side, the number one thing is talk to your people. I can't even tell you right now how many companies have reached out to me because I do a lot of like uh, day-long workshops. I'll come in, um, I'll do workshops on like how to recruit talent you want, not just the talent you're getting, um, how to actually you know, create a sustainable culture with a multi-generational workforce, right? This is another big thing that we're facing. This is the first time in history we've ever had a five-generation workforce, So there's a lot going on inside of these teams outside of a pandemic, right? So as far as the entrepreneurs out there and the employers out there that have people that they're dreading losing through all this, talk to your people. Because the calls that I get from companies that are saying, hey, what can I do? What can I do? I'm freaking out. I don't want to lose my top talent, you know? And I'm saying, okay, well, what are people telling you that they want? And they're like, well, I don't know. So I should, let's just like send an email. I should like survey them. And I'm like, why are you asking me? You haven't even had a conversation with your people yet. And I think that there's this just fear around having the real conversation. Like, like be humble and be ready to fumble, right? Be ready to have somebody tell you, you know, I didn't really like how we did it before. And since I've been able to work from home, I'm way more productive and I'd like to continue doing this. So if you think I've been doing a good job and I've been producing for the last 12 to 18 months in my remote position, Can we figure out a way that I can stay remote, right? Can we do something where people have an option to have the flexibility and come into the office once a week or once a quarter for big meetings or whatever it needs to be, you know? And I think that there's just a a real fear on the part of employers that just are maybe afraid of what their people are going to say. And I attribute this back to two core things. Um, I think part of it is ego and I think part of it is control. I think you have some people out there that say, how can I be the figurehead of my company if I don't get to be in front of people? I like, I like having my big corner office in the big office space. I like that I kind of get this energy from people when I'm in the office. This is the culture I want to create. They need to stop making it about them, period. And I've worked with people like this. And I've also worked with people who are incredibly selfless leaders and said, hey, Everybody voted to have Zoom meetings once a week instead of in-person meetings. Let's do that. Hey, half my team has kids and they're dealing with kids at home right now. And this is easy and this helps people out. Let's do it. Like, it's not about them, right? And those are the people retaining their teams right now. The other big piece is control. I, a friend of mine, Diane Mulcahy, who is wonderful, she wrote the book, The Gig Economy, which is a fantastic book for any of your entrepreneurs, especially folks that are kind of in the budding periods of just getting their, their thing off the ground. Diane uh, teaches this as a course, actually, at Babson. And her and I were talking about this. And uh, 
I was just in Ireland randomly and she happened to be there and we met up and like had this whole conversation. Yeah. And she, she writes this great column for Forbes on women in the gig economy. And she had interviewed me back in 2019 prior to the recession. And we literally had an entire conversation about why is there so much mistrust in the corporate environment and the fact that this is just crushing cultures and chasing out good talent. And I totally attribute this back to part of our problem right now with these employers that are like, I want people to come back in. I miss that culture and this and that. And it's like, no, no, no. Let's let's have the real conversation and call the coyotes on the table right now. You don't feel like you know what people are doing if you can't see them. And this micromanagement type of style is just so counterproductive and people don't want to deal with it anymore. And they've had the chance now to operate for 12 to 18 months from home. And now you're going to tell people that they have to come back into the office. What does that say to people? Now that I can tighten the reins again, you got to come back in. Like, come on. Mm. We, we have to think bigger than this. You know what I mean? Like, I have no... I have no time for, there's so many companies that have called me and I've had these conversations with them. And I'm like, I absolutely cannot help you. <laughs> I'm not going to help you control your people more. <laughs> Love it. So it sounds like one of your pieces of advice to companies is just ask your people, what is a great experience to you? And you can ask them that in the recruiting process during the an interview you can ask your existing employees what is a great experience for you how has that changed over the course of the last year year and a half and then as a uh, as an employer really check off on ego and control needs and really ask yourself is that serving your workforce is that ultimately serving your customer or is it really more about you? And if you discover it's more about you, let go of some of that and have a bit more flexibility. Sounds like that's kind of the crux of your advice to employers. Yeah. And like go to therapy and get an executive coach. Like it's not your employee's job to make you feel secure, <laughs> you know, and this stuff is rooted in trust. You know, all, most of the conflict that happens in a workplace boils down to trust issues. Um, there's a great book by Paul Zak called Trust Factors, and he really breaks all of this down from like a biochemical uh, way of like, how does trust actually affect us physically? How do we build trust with people? And he talks about the CEO syndrome, right? And how when someone becomes a CEO, testosterone levels actually rise because they have this figurehead center stage kind of embodiment now to their company. And that changes how we, how we are. And when your testosterone levels go up, your empathy d diminishes. Like it's a really interesting concept, but you think about this and how almost CEOs have to work against themselves to make these decisions sometimes, you know? And yeah, I just think, uh, I think back to the, the good experience piece too, uh, Lindsay Pollock, I know I'm throwing so many resources at you, but these are great books and great authors. And I love all these people. Um, Lindsay Pollock, who I absolutely love, she had this great book, book called The Remix. And this was all about multi-generational workforces. And she said, one size fits none. You can't keep going for this one size fits all mentality when it comes to culture and providing experience for people. Because again, people value different things. People have different learning styles. Um, you know, working at the university, I still teach at UNH and I've got students who got on internships and I've, I've got students that'll say to me, you know, they've, God, there was just this one person in the office who always just gave me dirty looks when I'd be doing my work. And the more I dug in, I found that they were wearing their ear pods and the employee was like, kind of like a, you know, a boomer or something or someone who was older who th this would never have been appropriate back in the day. You would never sit at your desk with headphones on, you know, and the student is like, this is how I focus. It's really loud in the office. And I just, I'm not even listening to anything. Like I'm just drowning out the craziness. <laughs> like, so this whole idea of how we set expectations for people, it's not about updating your policy manual. It's not about putting out these like overarching expectations for people. It's especially for these small businesses, right? For these entrepreneurs that have maybe five people or 15 people, right? Talk to folks. Say up front, set the expectation. There's certain things that are negotiable and there's certain things that aren't, right? Like there are going to be certain times that I have to push back on you because it just doesn't make business sense or it's too hard for us to enact in the, in the right way. But I want to hear from you, right? Do, are you open to a hybrid schedule? Would you prefer 100%? If you're open to hybrid, what does that look like? source the information and the solutions from the people 
that you're trying to retain, right? Give them some skin in the game and, and give them some say in how this is all going to look. And I guarantee you, you're going to have a much more responsive workforce. An important topic to individuals and companies, especially recently, has been a conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm curious about your perspective on DEI and its place as it relates to employers. Thank you for asking that question. I think as three white people, we have to be having this conversation a lot more. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, social equity and social justice are a huge part of my personal life, let alone my professional life. Um, and I think that social equity in the workplace is just an absolutely paramount topic. I don't care if you've got two people on your team. I don't care if you've got 200 people on your team. If it's talking about someone who's managing a disability or if it's someone who's talking about, you know, racial um, disparities, if it's gender, whatever it may be, right? LGBTQIA pronouns, like there's so many ways that this topic gets brought up and looks very different in every environment. And I think every organization is going to have to look at themselves and hold up that heavy mirror and say, where are we missing an opportunity here? Where are we missing an opportunity to diversify our workforce? Or is there implicit bias that's seeping into our hiring practices that, that's resulted in, in us hiring this very homogenous, like cookie cutter kind of like white, male, straight, hetero, you know, it's like our workforce all looks the same. Is This could actually be negatively impacting our business. Um, missing an opportunity with how we're engaging with certain clients who don't look like the people that are providing that service or product. So I think that like from a business standpoint, it's incredibly important. But from a human standpoint, it is like, I, I don't ever, I would never, um, I would never want to work for another company that wasn't racially diverse or where everybody looked like me, sounded like me, had my lived experience. Like there's so much to be gained. Um, and I think working in higher education for so long, I mean, UNH is such a socially liberal, uh, very globally diverse, very racially diverse staff, student body. Um, I shouldn't say very racially diverse. This is still New Hampshire, but they could do better. But um, I'll give you an example. I think the way to think about this, especially for employers who maybe are of a majority identity, right? White, straight, cis, hetero. I think this is where if you don't know what you don't know, but you feel like you want to start having these conversations, you need to start leaning into resources where this is what they specialize in. I recommend working with DEI consulting firms like Mars Hill Group, um, Jermaine Moore. He's wonderful. He's right in Elliott, Maine. Um, I love the Attaway Group, uh, Desiree Attaway, Erica Hines, Jessica Fish. And the thing that to remember is that these organizations should be led by people of color or led by the type of diverse you know, population that you're looking to actually support in your business, right? If you have uh, trans folks in your organization or someone who's transitioning or someone who is uh, gender non-conforming or non-binary, have a consultant come in, come in who's had that lived experience so that they can speak from a first person, you know, firsthand experience. Like it just, it makes a huge difference. And so that's where I think a lot of people have the best intentions, but they still kind of drop the ball on making change in this way. Um, and a lot of people will call me and say, hey, how do I diversify my recruit? You know, I want to recruit more diverse people. And I'll look at them and I'm like, listen, I can give you the keys to the car here and I can give you all the, the secrets on how to diverse more, uh, di diversify your candidate pool. But you don't even have a hospitable environment yet. You, you don't even have like a really inclusive workforce. I'm not going to help you recruit people. Uh, especially like people of color who are coming into an organization where they're the first person of color, they have no support system. There's really, you're, you you would even think of maybe relocating them. Maybe, what Are you in a predominantly white area? So now I'd ask this person to leave their whole community to come work for you. In this. So employers have to think through this in a different way. It's not about diversifying the candidate pools, hiring someone of color or hiring someone who's gay or trans or whatever. It's, you know, and expecting them to come in and diversify your culture and make your culture more inclusive, your culture has to be inclusive first. And that is another example of things we have to talk to our workforce about. I'm wondering about most organizations and people, when they think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, they think of sexuality, gender, and ethnicity. 
And there are other biases out there. For example, the statistic on 60% of Fortune 500 CEOs are over six feet tall, yet 14.5% of males are over six feet tall. There's clearly a bias on height. Only 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are obese, while 42.5% of the adult population is obese. There's clearly a bias for weight. How does all of that play in? Because I think a lot of the conversation is about, again, sexuality, uh, gender, and ethnicity, but there are these other biases too. It seems to be a very complex ball of wax to go about as an employer. Absolutely. Um, And I love those examples that you provide because I, I talk to people about those all the time. I will say that there's a real bias against people who are attractive. Um, I think that, you know, a candidate who might be extremely brilliant, but, you know, they're interviewing against someone who's very polished and very attractive, like that's a sense of privilege, you know, that the attractiveness, uh, body type, um, height, you know, for men, like you're saying, like, these are all senses of privilege that I think we as employers and recruiters have to understand there's something called a mirror bias. Um, I used to talk to my hiring managers all the time. They'd say, oh, I really love this candidate. I'm like, you know why you really like them? Because they sound just like you on the phone or they look just like you. They, like that you, you, people are definitely, like attracts like. So we have to do that heavy lifting to almost unlearn these things and rewire the way that we look at talent. But again, this stuff takes effort. You know, This is where I think, companies that put their money where their mouth is and or have an executive coach who is a person of color or who is um, more well-versed in different types of bias, right? This is where that can be really, really meaningful and helpful because they're going to start to look at candidate pools in a different way. I think, you know, age, ageism is still very much a real thing, you know? Um, but I will also say that, you know, when you talk about uh, like CEOs and the height thing or someone who's obese versus not, I think access, financial access, like, okay, can you afford a personal trainer? Can you afford to eat well? You know, these are senses of privilege and access issues almost before their biases in the workplace. So the other thing that I'll just say is like something to keep in mind, because I've had, I've been in lots of conversations about this, right? And every now and then you'll have someone that pipes up that's like, well, everything should just be, you know, well, everything could be a privilege or everything this and white, I'm so sick of hearing about white privilege. And I'm just like, listen, first of all, there's a really big difference between, uh, from a legal perspective, protected classes of folks versus unprotected classes of folks. Right. So I used to have, I used to work at a uh, college and we had a medical assisting program. And I I will never forget this one student she wanted, she was a medical assisting graduate. She wanted to go get this job as an MA at uh, Anna Jake's hospital and Anna Jake's hospital in Massachusetts, wonderful establishment. And they were the one of the first hospitals to say, we don't want to hire smokers. We will test for tobacco as a pre-employment test with your drug test. And if you fail, you can't even reapply for six months. This is back in like 2012. This was unheard of at the time. And I had this medical assistant grad that was like, that's discrimination and this is crazy and blah, blah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Smokers are not a protected class of person. And this is what you have to understand when it comes to hiring. There is a very big difference between a preference, a bias, a discriminatory filter that is being used on how we're hiring people. So this is something that I think people want to keep in mind, right? Like, like able-bodyism right? People who are managing disabilities, right? These folks, protected class, right? Someone who's obese or someone who's short, or we think of all these other attributes, right? Not a protected class. Maybe maybe they will be someday, but they're not right now. So from a hiring perspective, there's certain things that people definitely have to be a little bit more cognizant of. To your point, I think DEI as an initiative internally, I think is a response and a, and a, a good response, a step in the right direction to just the acknowledgement that for so long, this was not a priority. Not only was it not a priority, people specifically avoided it. So, I mean, we've seen this throughout our entire history, right? Let alone in the workplace. I mean, redlining with real estate and all this other stuff. But I think that it's a good step in the right direction. I just think there's a way to do it right and there's a way to do it wrong. You know, don't put the, don't have your only employee of color shoulder the burden of starting an affinity group for crying out loud. 
like yeah, no doubt. little things like that, you know, Crystal, um, we had a guest on our podcast, um, you know, in the past few months, uh, Mike Zanny, the CEO of Predictive Index. And one thing he said on that episode is resonating with me in this conversation, which is entrepreneurs, uh, and I'm going to put myself squarely in this box, uh, when they start their business or they're growing their business and they're looking at their budgets and they're looking at where they're going to spend their overhead, um, will hire salespeople, operational people. Uh, accounting and a whole bunch of other roles well before they start realizing, oh, I probably need someone for talent management or for HR or for whatever else. And Mike Zanny in this episode said, the first person you should hire when you start a company is your chief people officer. (laughs) And the person who is going to recruit, retain, uh, you said something earlier, recruit talent you want versus talent you are getting. Yeah. Um, and make sure that you're building your company from the people first, not from the sales first or the operational first. That's how you'll build a real strong foundational company. And I challenged him in that conversation. I think that's not true. I want to hire the sales rep because you can't do business without sales. And, but yet I keep mm-hmm. seeing companies. Um, I'm involved in some companies that Talent is almost an afterthought. Oh, we have the business. Oh, we got to find somebody. And then you just take whatever comes or whatever's available. If I'm an entrepreneur listening and I'm hiring you and I'm saying, look, quit your company. You're coming to work for my business as this as the chief people officer. Get me straight. What are the, like in a bullet point format, it doesn't have to be five or 10 or whatever you think it is. What would be the things if you came in as a chief people officer, you would want to make sure that this company is doing across the board to make sure that we don't get caught by this great resignation, the September tsunami of great movement <laughs> and lose the talent war? What are those bullet point things you would say? Here's what you need to do, John. Boom, 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 boom. Wow. First of all, what a great sentiment to share. And also, um, I mean, I love his take on that and his opinion. I mean, not only because that's my space, but it is true that it's such an afterthought, right? People don't think about talent until they're ready to scale. And when you're ready to scale, you've already built your foundation. So, and that most people will tell you, most CPOs or um, uh, folks in HR will say, once the foundation is built, it's really hard to make change. It's really hard to make change, right? So the first thing that comes to mind is I think that there's an insane amount of value in building proactive talent pipelines. So this means college talent, student interns, you can get a lot for your money paying an intern who is extremely ambitious and extremely hardworking. Um, And if you set up one of the workshops that I I host for companies is how to create a really successful internship program from Mm -hmm. scratch. And what that means internally, right? It means that you're, yes, getting this pipeline of talent. But also step out of the talent acquisition side for a second and think about talent management side for your folks that are your more senior level players, your sales managers. What if they're feeling stagnant, right? Because let's talk about retention, right? We talk about this great resignation. Retention is key. What if they're feeling stagnant? What if they've been really good producers, but you know what? They're like chomping at the bit for more responsibility or they're like, you know, I just, I want to manage people. And you're thinking, oh, I don't have the budget to hire someone full time to put under this guy for like two years. Like he's going to leave. What's Give them an intern. Give them a co-op student for six months. Like these are things that are low-hanging fruit. You have entire organizations and these universities that are structured to help you build out these relationships, find these students, get on campus, do info sessions. Also, this is great PR for your business. You're building your employer brand. This is another bullet point, I would say. A chief people officer or someone who has a lens through employer branding and recruitment marketing understands that I don't care how good your product is. Mm-hmm. That is not going to tell me why I should come work for you. Yep. And this is a huge miss. And I was talking to someone recently, a great consumer brand in, in the New England area, um, food product. And she was, she was the recruiter and she was saying, you know, I'm having such a hard time filling these positions I got open right now. You know, we're both like lamenting over coffee or something. And she's like, and they're just not giving me more budget to, to hire. And I'm like, how is that possible in this market? You have to pay competitively. And she's like, they just think, oh, people love our jams and jellies so much that like, you know, our brand is so strong that like, we'll always have this funnel of people. And I was like, your blueberry mountain jam ain't paying my phone bill. Your, your, you know, stuff isn't yeah. paying my mortgage. Like, 
So these companies are out here thinking, oh, well, we can just hire people when we need to hire them. They're not tying it back to the strategy of their actual business of selling product, or Mm -hmm. they're leaning way too heavily on their brand to equate to the value proposition for a candidate or even retaining the people that you have. Like you have, again, growth looks different to everybody, right? So a chief people officer is the person who steps into your organization and starts to see how all these things are connected. Yep. They're part of your business strategy meetings, but they're also going to campuses and hiring interns, right? They're they're completely linked into all facets of how your business needs talent to survive, but also how are we allowing the pipelines that we're creating to help your current people thrive, like management opportunities, leadership and mentorship, um, but also new ideas, right? Internships are a great source of new ideas and innovation. Sure. You know, so it's like there's so much value packed into that. Another thing would be when we talk about diversity, right? Having a chief people officer that is able to push back on the business when you as the CEO are so focused on the bottom line or someone else is so focused on operations or production, that person can be the one to step back and say, hey, this thing over here that we have, what a great opportunity for veterans. Maybe we should be connecting with a veterans group, right? To have people come in. Or this over here, what a a missed opportunity if we don't have... um, you know, a research partnership with this university, right? Or this nonprofit that we can partner with and sponsor and like how that actually connects back to the kind of folks we like to hire. Like Mm -hmm. it's the person who steps back from the thing because they're not as emotionally tied to it as the CEO. Yeah. And they're able to see where the opportunities are. Yeah. So I think it's, to your point, I think it's an incredibly value first, like valuable first hire to make. Yeah. Because there's function, but there's also strategic vision built into this. Yes, we can recruit people, but yes, this is how it's actually helping the business grow and expand and thrive. And a point you made too earlier, and I think Rich, you highlighted it, and you know, it made me think about something. Is when you talked about, you know, what when you talk to candidates and they say, "Well, I want a great experience. I want a great culture." You said, you know, you got to understand what you value as a single career person looking for employment. You know, as a CEO or as a CPO, chief people officer, one of the things that you should be doing is understand what your people value across the board. 100%. And having a CPO on board that that really is challenging that CEO on, no, 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 that's your bias. Uh, you think everybody should look and act like you and smell like you and whatever. Uh, here's here's what your people actually value. They value this, 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 and this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that CPO helping you figure that out is is huge. So. What I got from you in terms of I had to recap the bullet points was proactive in your talent pipeline. Yep. That's massive. Like, yep. you know, Rich, we, 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 you know, in the sales environment, you know, we used to watch Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and always be closing from a sales perspective. And I think we flipped that sometimes to always be recruiting, just yeah. always be recruiting, always be recruiting because that's your talent pool. So, you know, get that proactive pipeline, uh, employer branding, which is massive. You want people yep. to be like, you want to come work here. If your team is bringing you warm network leads of other people to come work here. That's a good sign Yeah, <laughs> that they yeah. value your culture. And if, if you're creating that culture within your business, that's, that's thumbs up. Uh, diversity you talked about is really helping push the diversity uh, side of things. And then the last one you didn't mention specifically, but you, but you give examples to it was really working on retention, yeah. uh, helping people, whether it be leadership or mentorship or uh, giving them management responsibilities, even though you may not be ready with an intern, you know, things like that to kind of make sure they feel valued and where they're trying to go with their careers, which I'm sure if I was to hire you as a people officer for our company, you would not only be helping our company, you'd actually be helping the people in the company because you're, yes. you're very individual focused, right? <laughs> uh, you're so. basically hiring an in-house therapist. Like, I don't know if you watch the show Billions, but there's yeah. they, they have like an in-house psychologist, right? Yes. Like, yeah. think of the value that that adds, like not for nothing, but the other thing here, and, and you you were getting to this, and I was like, oh, I need to throw this in there. When you are leaning on somebody who is able to not just help bring in great new talent, but help your current talent not just stay, but but level up, right? Yeah. Like if I can take your best salesperson and make them better, that's great. But if I can take your worst salesperson and make them better, that's a game changer. So it's yeah. like, that's saving a saving someone that might have to go on a performance improvement plan. You know, the the idea is not to have to hire that much. If you have a proactive talent pipeline and you've got interns coming in, 
you should never have to hire for a director of sales unless that's a brand new position maybe, but like you should always be hiring people that you can promote from within so that yeah. you're only ever having to recruit junior people. Yeah. And then you have this proactive talent pipeline coming from a university that's nearby or something like, oh my God, are these remote jobs now? You have an entire yeah. national candidate pool that you can select from. That's right. So there's just a lot of value to be added. Yeah. 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 No doubt. And you know, you, you talked, um, you know, I know you talk a lot with, you know, again, individuals with how they can stand out. Mm-hmm. I think having your company stand out, you know, if you are showing your people you're investing in a chief people officer right off the bat um, and you have those resources, you know, you're showing that you're investing in your people, you know, that that's a huge, huge piece. You know, if, if I come all the way back to it, what HR in my mind has a very negative connotation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's maybe where my mental roadblock has been. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I don't want to have to hire an HR person. That's just, they're just going to tell me what more tape I need to put. And, you know, some red tape here, some red tape there. We can't do anything. We start functioning like robots. But when you start talking about a chief talent officer or chief people officer, mm-hmm. and they're there to help grow the business, mm-hmm. maybe protect it as well, but, but grow it, that's a different twist. Absolutely. And I will say that I'm seeing more and more talent acquisition arms, talent acquisition, which is usually closely linked to the employer branding group. Um, If it's not the same person, I was a team of one when I worked at Lint, so I did all of it. But Mm -hmm. it's like I rolled up through HR, but I was at my own function. But I'm right now I'm seeing a lot of organizations that are actually separating employer branding from human resources. I think that can be a little dangerous sometimes, and I'll tell you why there is some very necessary red tape, right? We were just talking about bias versus discriminatory filters, right? So if you have have a team of 10 salespeople, right? You haven't hired a a chief people officer yet and you don't really have an HR person, maybe you outsource that function, right? Payroll, the operational stuff. And that's what people think about HR with. They're like, it's the personnel office of the 1950s, right? Whatever. This is very different. This is like, I'm sitting down with your sales managers, if I'm a CPO coming in, and I'm saying, do you know what questions you can legally ask in an interview or not legally ask in an interview? Because I'm trying to protect us from being sued. Do you know when you have a candidate or someone on your team that's not performing, the fact that you have to give people a written a written warning that you have to put them on a performance improvement plan to protect the company from a wrongful termination suit if you terminate them too quickly. There's just some like really important red tape that I would say that's important, but it's more the protective. It's not trying to make people's lives like miserable because we can't do certain things and this and that. But the other thing is, again, going back to this idea of having almost like an in-house psychologist, like one of the things that I think is so brilliant, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Um, but he partnered with, uh, this guy, Paul White, who's a business psychologist. And they wrote the secondary book called the five Lang- five languages of appreciation in the workforce. And it's how the five love languages show up at work. And this is something that is so profound when you share this with management, because the people who are in charge of hiring people onto their teams, think about it. Like, okay, what motivates you? Like, how do you feel appreciated? You might say, well, I like raises. I like bonuses. Okay, so you get someone that comes and joins your team and you start throwing them Starbucks gift cards every time they do a good job, but they're not a gifts person. They're a words of affirmation person. All they need is an attaboy. All they need is that nice email CC'd to the rest of the company saying, John crushed it this week. Oh my God. Like what? So it's like, this is a really important thing for people who want to be great leaders to understand is that like, you can't make the assumption that people are motivated by the same things as you are. What motivates you might demotivate that person. And I've yeah. seen that happen. I've seen yeah. very great, smart people chase good talent off their teams constantly. And it's like, I had to sit down with them and be like, help me understand like what yeah. is happening. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say too, is that some people that are really great performers shouldn't be managing people. Oh my God. It's a completely different skill set. You know, yeah, that happens a lot. That All happens the a lot. The amount of times we've promoted people that are great performers to leadership and management roles and it's backfired. Yeah. You're like, why is everybody quitting off this person's team? Like what's happening, you know? And you don't want to fire somebody who's a great performer. Yeah. So it's like, these are just different skill sets. And if you don't have somebody who's coming in and looking at the business in a different way, mm-hmm. who it's their job to have these conversations, I will say for CEOs, Having a CPO saves you a lot of really tough conversations. So if you're someone who doesn't like conflict, 
Hi, that's one good CEO. reason to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll do it for you and we'll coach you on how to do it better. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, you answered John's question on, you know, what are some of the bullets on what you'd recommend if I brought you on as a chief people officer? And the first thing you mentioned was build a proactive talent pipeline. And then you went to internship program. uh, And you mentioned that you do um, uh, seminars, a a series, a workshop for employers on how to have a great internship program. First of all, I just wanted to highlight that for our entrepreneurs who are listening, that they could reach out to you and you would show them how to be able to do that and the importance of it. I also wanted to follow up with a question to you on the proactive talent pipeline. What other ways can employers do that outside of just the internship program? Great question. I think that applicant tracking systems are now making this much easier um, because you have a built system, right? Like that comes out of a box practically that you can apply um, to your organization. And this is the thing that helps you sort resumes and this and that. And you can find some very cost-effective ones out there. But what I love, love, love seeing, something that we uh, implemented when I worked at Lint and I was, uh, we had launched a brand new career site, you know, all of our jobs were posted there and stuff, but I wanted to have a job alert system. So we actually had our, our agency build in a, a portal where someone could actually say, send me job alerts um, for any time there's a marketing job that posts, right? Love they could that. select things. And so we, and and it would say like, we might not have a role open right now, but like, we want to have you on deck in case this role opens. And so then I could go into the back end of my system and I had in like two clicks, almost like a built-in like Excel system where I could just send a mass email to everybody who said they want to know about sales jobs and be like, guess what? Hiring for sales soon. And it's like, you have 60 people that are ready to apply that you don't even have to, from an employer branding perspective too, it's helpful because you don't have to sell them. They've already identified that they would love to come work for you. So you have the ease of these systems now that can make this very, very um, efficient for you to manage these pipelines. But also too, think about like, think about if you had, um, I would have really hard to fill positions, right? Let's say I was looking for like a food scientist and it was like, a re- I would hire most of them from like Wisconsin, some of these great universities that have food science programs. But let's say that I'm looking, right? I could send out a mass email to anybody who signed up for our email alerts, our job blasts in our system. And I could say, hey, we're doing a flash referral program, like a flash referral bonus. We're trying to find a food scientist. And this is a really hard to fill position for our company. We only want to hire the best. Who do you know? If we hire someone you know, we will send you the biggest basket of lint chocolate you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) I had great bartering tools when I worked there. Yeah, you did. Um, And that was something that I would get wonderful referrals from people. And even if they weren't people that we would hire, now we have other people that we're talking to. So it's like you're, you're getting people to champion this effort for you. Like, and this is something that I, I had to learn how to do this stuff on the fly because I was a team of one, you know, I filled 80 positions a year for Lint. I mean, such a wonderful organization, but like we ran lean, you know, we're Swiss. We, we ran very lean. So I was very busy. Um, and I think any shops out there, any entrepreneurs out there that are running very lean, or maybe even just have one person that kind of helps with hiring, maybe you don't even have a recruiter on deck. Get learn how to use your community, learn how to cultivate these connections with people. I think LinkedIn is a huge missed opportunity for some people, yep. not Sales Navigator. I hate that module. It is not effective. It is setting up terrible <laughs> like habits yep. for people and how they message folks. I think there's better ways of using it. This is another whole thing I counsel people on. <laughs> but I think that this is something that very lean shops need to learn how to embrace and ask for help in that way and incentivize with something. It could be a, it could be a hundred dollar Amazon gift card and you will have people share that job on their social media, on their LinkedIn. Like it doesn't. I think think what you're really talking about here, Crystal is as opposed to being an afterthought, I'm going to keep going back to recruit talent you want versus talent you are getting. Yep. If you treated your recruiting and talent pipeline, like you would your sales and customer pipeline, where you have a CRM and applicants are always going into it and they're saying when, you know what, they want to be notified and you have a referral program 
and you have somebody who is, you know, vetting out candidates, just like you'd vet out. I mean, it's, it's really, you put all this effort into sales for your business, but you don't put a lot of effort into your talent sales, right? Your, your talent recruitment process. Right. Uh, so I really love that, you know, that the examples you're giving, because it makes, it reminds me of what would you do if you were trying to sell? You'd have a CRM system, you'd track yeah. your candidates, you'd, you know, you'd always be contacting them, you'd have pipeline, you'd have newsletters, you'd have referral programs. Yeah, and let's be want. clear, recruiting yeah. is sales, okay? Exactly. I don't have an HR background. Yeah. I my I don't have any formal HR background. I'm not out yeah. here trying to update your HR manual. That's not what I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, so Crystal, sales. If, if a company does not have a chief people officer today, and the thought of hiring a full-time chief people officer at a you know high salary for their business isn't in their cards for whatever reason. They can't stomach the bill or, or whatever mm-hmm. it is at this particular point. Is there such a thing as fractional CPO firms of people that you can get a fraction of crystal or a fraction of, you know, come and help my business for 10 hours of your week as opposed to 40? Does yeah. that exist out there? Oh, for sure. I mean, okay. you have, and you could get really specific with it. I mean, I think of agencies like Recruiter Boom which is, or Hire Alliance. Um, Hire Alliance is out of uh, Bedford, New Hampshire. Uh, and think of it like if you just had to hire a recruiter as a temp to hire a bunch of people for you, yeah. and then once those people are hired, you don't need the recruiter anymore because maybe it was just like a surge in your hiring through the year or something. You yeah. can just hire a contract recruiter through an agency. They find the person for you. They plug them in. You know, yeah. but you have, and then you also have what's called RPO, which is recruitment process outsourcing. So that's more like, what I do for this one firm that I work okay. with. And this isn't a huge part of my business and it's not something that I market myself for because it's yep. I just it's a lot of time. Sure. But eight hours a week, I'm plugging into their applicant tracking system, right? I have in I can see everything in their world, right? I'm talking to candidates on behalf of them. So yep. I'm very much a representation of their company. So it's a it's a more entrenched relationship. Yeah. Um but I think that, you know, there's a lot of contractors out there right now. I mean, sure. look at what we're talking about, right? The gig economy and, yep. and all of these folks that have left these corporate roles and did what I did and they went out on their own. And I yep. mean, I had a, a company call me, um, their headquarters is down in Westboro, Mass, and they brought in all of their regional recruiters and I did like a day long training. And it was, it was literally on what we're talking about, how to recruit smarter, not harder, right? The, yep. the days of post and pray are over. <laughs> like, For sure. you're not just posting the job and just like hoping you get the right person. And we have to be really strategic about how we're going after people on LinkedIn. Do you know how to use a LinkedIn recruiter seat? This is another thing I trained uh, junior recruiters on. Um, I had a great tech company in Portsmouth that called me and said, we just hired this great girl from an, from an internship. You know, she's our new recruiter but she's real green, right? And she doesn't know what she doesn't know. Can you come in and just like give her a boot camp? And that's what I did. And I love that stuff. So there are ways for people to do this in a very cost-effective way. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Crystal. So much information here. I mean, we we spent, um, you know, the reverse of your company where you spend 99% on the candidates and 1% on the companies, we spent 99% on the companies uh, to get the reverse side of it. Really get the opposite side of, of what you're seeing in the market. And this is, very beneficial for entrepreneurs to be thinking about how am I positioning my business? And yeah. uh, certainly would encourage any entrepreneurs or people for that matter that are listening to this episode to reach out for more more information or guidance on how you can help their companies or, or them as individuals because there's, there's just so much here. And we as entrepreneurs need to start taking talent more seriously or we're going to lose the talent war, yeah. plain and simple. So I uh, really appreciate your time here today. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you. Great Chris. questions. Great questions. God, I always appreciate good questions, you know, the journalist in me. (laughs) I like being interviewed when there's good questions. (laughs) Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode. I think Crystal was so good. And I think, oh my gosh, the majority of companies and large companies, entrepreneurs listening, could use so many of the tips and tricks and perspectives and the number of books, just what a wealth of resources she was today. Absolutely. Rich, why is it so difficult? Why, like, when you when you hear Crystal talk about the areas she went through today, it's all common sense. It all makes sense. You listen to it, you're like, well, why aren't we doing it? Why aren't companies investing enough, anything, in some cases, in talent management? And, and again, I'll, I'll raise my hand. Guilty. Absolutely guilty. 
It's always been sales, operations, finance. Three legs of the stool, here we go. It's never really been a focus on talent. And we are in a massive talent war. And this whole concept of, and I feel like I'm living in, in a little box here. I haven't even heard this great resignation, but there's no doubt that great people are getting pickpocketed out of companies right now because other companies are really trying to win the talent war. Why is it so difficult for us as entrepreneurs or companies to really see it and invest in this area? It seems so simple, yet no one's really doing it. Yeah, I can give you my hypothesis on it. Certainly, I don't know the answer, but my hypothesis on it is a lot of entrepreneurs or CEOs see that role as just a straight overhead role. Uh, I think that's one reason why, because they feel like they could hire other people that will attach to revenue more directly. I think that's number one. I think number two, uh, there are an awful lot of people that overestimate their own skills to hire and develop talent. Uh, I think there are a lot, you know, Crystal talked in the episode about uh, the ego and control of CEOs. Mm -hmm. If you apply that to this topic, certainly I think the ego, I think it, people overestimate their skill in this area and think they don't need somebody because they're really good at it. And the third area, I think, would be that level of control that Crystal mentioned, that in order to have somebody else who's doing the talent uh, acquisition or the talent development, it's a little bit of a perception of loss of control on behalf of the CEO and those who are currently in control to bring on this straight overhead person when I'm pretty good at it myself. So yeah. I, that would be my hypothesis. Yeah. You know what it also kind of raised, if I get off that topic of, you know, why aren't companies doing this? One of the things I find very interesting, and it's going to necessitate companies doing this, is things have changed very rapidly in the last let's call it decade, right? The rise of Uber, and she mentioned the book, The Gig Economy a few times, and apparently you know, good friends with the author of that book. And I think we have, as, a, as a working society have changed. And the COVID pandemic just, oh my gosh, accelerated that by maybe another decade in terms of, look, I'm going to work where I want to work. I'm going to live where I want to live. I'm going to be happy in what I do. And, and one of the big things I'm seeing now too is ownership. I want to have ownership in what I'm doing. I'm tired of being a number, getting a paycheck, uh, trying to make a living and working for somebody else when I can just get kicked to the curb when a recession happens or a pandemic happens. I want to have ownership in what I do. I want ownership in the company. I, it could be a small piece, but I want to feel like I'm building something. And you know, when you when you bring your your team into that, it's not you know, it's not just the ownership part, but it's the social equity. It's the you know, it's understanding what your people value. It's having people want to refer their friends and, you know, uh, acquaintances to come work for your business because they love working there so much and what the company provides. But I want I, ownership is a big thing in my mind. We didn't really talk about it in this episode with Crystal, but I think having a chief people officer in your business is, is one big lesson. And the second one is have your people own a fractional piece of your business, own the culture that's being built. Have it be more decentralized than that one control person you're talking about who wants to dictate, no, this is the culture. This is the way things should go. Yeah, and just for clarity, when you're saying own a fractional piece of your business, you're not literally saying it at, at this time in this episode, you're not literally saying in the way of stock or stock options or ownership, you're saying in the way of owning a particular element of something that needs to be developed. Uh, where that person who's in the uh, employee seat can be entrepreneurial with a particular field of vision that they own themselves. Is that I'm saying, I'm saying yes, I'm saying that, and I'm saying actual ownership. Like, think about the gig economy. What, why do people want to go be an Uber driver? Well, they're, they're, it's their own business, as opposed to going to work for a taxi company. Right, as an example, and I know taxi companies have you know, your own business structures as well, but this I mean, is not a great example. But no, give people ownership. People want ownership in what they're building. And, and again, it could be uh, you know, a commission based sales could be you say it's ownership because you're getting a fraction of the piece that's coming in. So there's different ways to incent people, it doesn't have to be actual stock, it could be a phantom stock, it could be very aggressive uh, bonus plans, profit sharing, plans, profit sharing, could be something. 
but people want to have ownership in what they are building, not just financial though, to your, to the point you just made ownership in the culture they're building a say, I'll give you a really good example. So uh, I was with a company in the past and one of the core values was servant leadership. And we were having a conversation amongst the employees about what does servant leadership mean? And one of the employees said, well, I think servant leadership means this, this, and this, and this. And the CEO of the company said, no, that's not what it means. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a complete oxymoron to servant leadership. Servant leadership (laughs) is you listen to what your team thinks it should be. And that's what it is because that's the team. Uh, But, you know, it was was kind of a little bit of an interesting example where, no, no, I'm going to control what servant leadership actually means, which defeated the purpose of servant leadership to begin with. Right. And that goes back to that, that whole control and ego and stop making it what you want. Understand what your people value. It's like the equivalent of uh, yelling at your kid to stop yelling. Yes. <laughs> the, uh, the oxymoron in that. Um, last thing I want to highlight just in this debrief is the value of building a proactive talent pipeline. And I asked about it on the episode and uh, about she went to internship. And I think that is a great uh, opportunity. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I asked about it on the episode. What are other ones? I'd never heard of a job alert system. I love it. I'm sure companies do it. Maybe I'm just haven't been exposed to it. Like she had several examples of that. I'm just curious to check in with you in your experience with companies. Do you feel you build a proactive talent pipeline? No, I have. Uh, I, I can I can point to a company in the past where we had a pipeline of people that always wanted to come work for our company. We had you know good referrals, but even then. By the way, I don't feel we do either. So not yeah. to put you on the spot there. No, I, absolutely. I, I would I would say, Rich, ninety plus percent. I don't know what percentage, but ninety plus percent do not. And that's why I'm like, why? Like, why? Why don't we get it? Like, well, it seems so simple. I mean, think about it. In the past, you'd put an ad on Career Builder or whatever the site of the month is to get resumes. You put an ad out there, you'd get hundreds of resumes. Post and pray, she called it. Yes, post and pray. You'd get these hundred resumes. You would ultimately find your candidate. What are you doing with the other 99% of the resumes you got? You're basically saying, okay, thanks, but no thanks. And what I think Crystal's talking about is you got to have a pipeline. You know, you have to have a CRM system and there's cheap ones, she said out there. We should have asked her what they are. But, you know, there's some systems where people can actually apply. All the candidates get in there. You can screen them through, but not all 99 are bad candidates. It's just in this particular instance, maybe their resumes suck. Like Crystal said, a lot of people's resumes aren't very good. You know, maybe you hired that one candidate. Maybe there's 70 other candidates that maybe were better fits or could have been a good fit. If you're keeping them in your system and the next time a job is open, you just ping them all. Hey, we're have another opening. You don't have to post the job on CareerBuilder or on your website. Very simple. Under your website, under contact us or careers, if you're looking for a job, put your, you know, subscribe to the news alert or the job alert. Love that. So simple, yet we don't do it. So, so much to learn and take away from that.